Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Joining me today is Andrew Sparberg, the author of From a Nickel to a Token, The Journey from Board of Transportation to MTA. It's a comprehensive look at New York's transit system from its inception to the 1960s. So good morning. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad you're here, Andrew. So let's jump right into it. How did the transportation system function prior to the creation of the MTA? Okay, prior to the creation of the MTA, uh, the lead agency that controlled the subway system was the New York City Transit Authority. That was from 1953 until 1968 when the MTA was created. Uh, prior to 1953, there was an agency called the Board of Transportation, which had been established in 1924. The Board of Transportation initially was created to build the IND subway, or independent system, the third of the three major systems. Its first trains operated in 1932, but then in 1940, the Board of Transportation's responsibilities were increased dramatically when the city bought the other two operators, the two private companies, the IRT, or Interborough Rapid Transit, and the BMT, or Brooklyn Manhattan Transit, and unified them under the Board of Transportation's management. So after 1940, all three subways were under municipal control, and the Board of Transportation was the operating agency. And the Board of Transportation continued to operate the system until 1953, when it was put out of existence and the New York City Transit Authority was created. Andrew, what are some of the benefits and challenges of each at this time in history between the buses, the rail services, and the trolleys? Let's start with the buses. What were the benefits? Okay. The benefits of buses is, of course, they were not wedded to rails. They could be rerouted if there was an emergency or routes could be changed relatively easily, unlike a trolley system, which is wedded to its rails and its power supply. And to reroute is often very difficult unless you have parallel or redundant trackage on another street. That was one of the arguments against keeping the trolleys. In your book, From a Nickel to a Token, Andrew, there tended to be some labor issues going on between the workers. So help me understand what were some of the issues that the workers had? Going to the period just before my book starts in the 19, in the 1920s and 30s, the workers were not unionized. They were generally treated very poorly. Uh, you have to keep in mind that all these companies were private and wanted to maximize their profits. And the, the nickel fare uh, put a cap on the profits they could earn. The city wouldn't let them raise the fare above a nickel. So because you need a very large workforce to operate systems like this, they were generally treated very badly. They worked six and seven day weeks, uh, 11, 12 hours a day. Often they had to sit around and wait for an assignment without getting paid. If they got an assignment at all, the working conditions were generally very bad, were unsafe. Uh, the system, the situation, of course, is much better today, thank goodness. So what happened was, Beginning in the 30s with the New Deal under President Roosevelt, there was a renewed emphasis on organizing industrial workers, and a new union called the Transport Workers Union was created in 1934, and in 1937 succeeded in organizing almost all of the workers on the major New York City transit systems, the IRT, the BMT, the Fifth Avenue Coach Company, which was Manhattan's primary bus operator, the Third Avenue Railway, which operated all of these streetcar lines in the Bronx, as well as some in Manhattan. The IND, all were organized by the Transport Workers Union or the TWU to end some of these horrible working conditions that the workers uh, were forced to endure. So then where was the conflict? Well, the conflict was, uh, the, naturally, the bosses wanted to uh, 
treat the workers pretty much almost like slaves in some cases. If you read stories about that, you'll understand what I mean. I mean, even just getting a bathroom break if you were working became an issue. It, it was discovered that after uh, when the union was created and the workers finally got a health plan, it was discovered a lot of them had kidney ailments because of the lack of ability to properly relieve themselves. It was basic stuff like that that forced them to unionize. And uh, there was no issue when they were given the opportunity. They voted overwhelmingly to unionize. So now workers have a voice. Yes, exactly. And you actually, in your book, you had a really funny story about um, how the issue between the union and management resulted in sort of an illegal joyride. Can you uh, share the story with me? Okay. Well, uh, it was not so much labor and management, just an individual's just uh, he snapped one day, although uh, the story that we're talking about occurred in 1947 right here in the Bronx. A bus driver for the 3rd Avenue Transit System, his name is William Samillo, uh, decided one day he'd had enough uh, between driving the bus, dealing with passengers, and remember in those days you had to make change. There was no exact fare, and the fare then in 1947 was still a nickel, but there was also, there were, in some cases, you had to pay an extra penny or two for a transfer, so that became a very onerous task, and just the, the whole thing dealing with the traffic, he snapped one day, and instead of driving his regular route on Gun Hill Road, he headed for the George Washington Bridge and kept driving till he reached Florida. True story. <laughs> And so what happens when they find out, well, you know, their buses in well, Florida? Well, he wired his boss back here in the Bronx this is funny. and told him to send money so I can uh, get fuel and come back. Of course, what his bosses did was send the cops to get him, and he was escorted back to New York. A, a uh, police officer drove his bus, although he, he sat in it as a passenger. <laughs> it's a true story. And when he came back, he was indicted for grand larceny, but the charge was dropped, and he... Uh, he agreed. They, the company took him back. The union helped him out. And you might be thinking, like, how could the company right. take him back? Mm. But he had a he had a he had a, a clean record, comp, and he right. had a good comment to. He look. had a right. He had a clean record up to the time. They took him back, and he never got in trouble again. A few years, some years later, he was interviewed uh, by the New York Times for a story about bus drivers, and he said, "You tell a joke a second time, it's not funny." So he. Really, he, he behaved himself and never got in trouble And again. let him know, I'm not going to do right. this again. It exactly. was just a momentary, exactly. a momentary exactly. snap right there. Exactly right. So uh, let me back up a little. Why was the, why did the, the, there have to be a nickel cap on the fare? That was a, a political issue, but that finally broke in 1948 because the post-World post War II, there was inflation, and that you know raised op all the operating costs for fuel and for labor. So finally, the dam finally broke, and the fare went up to a dime on July 1st, 1948. Well, not on everything. That was for the subways and the elevators. The buses that were operated by the buses and trolleys operated by the city went up only to $0.07, cents, and that stayed that way for just a few years. A $0.12 cent combination fare was created using a transfer ticket that allowed a person who was traveling between Manhattan and one of the outer boroughs to get a bus transfer and then take a total trip for $0.12, cents, not for $0.20. Cents. What year is this? 1948. And the private bus and trolley companies, such as the one here in the Bronx, 3rd Avenue Railway, were granted a raise initially to $0.06 cents and then to $0.07, cents, but that that created issues with change-making because now the, the fares were an odd penny. So that slowed up boarding and uh, created additional issues between labor and management. So, Andrew, explain how World War II affected the transportation system here in New York. Okay. The, the war affected it in many ways. First of all, there was a spike in ridership because people could not drive private cars because of gasoline and tire rationing. And, of course, the war industries ran around the clock, so you had not just 
two rush hours, but you had many, many rush hours on a given day. Uh, secondly, there was a uh, shortage of workers because so many men had been called into the military service. Uh, women were drafted to drive buses, drive trolleys, and uh, I believe, I'm not 100% sure about this, but even I work as, as uh, train conductors. Certainly worked in the stations as change agents, so that, but still there were not there was not enough labor to make the, for the system to work efficiently. So you had a you know a very unnatural condition for a few years, and of course this would end when the, when the war ended, uh, and of course another and that was product. one of the only times that that, that five cent right. uh, fare was right. not a big issue, right? Because, because the system was actually making a surplus on the five cent fare because ridership was so high. But one of the long-term issues that came out later was because the system was being used constantly, 24-7, it was wearing out. The stations were in lousy shape. The cars were in lousy shape. And the, the maintenance was deferred, which, of course, then you pay the piper later, which we've learned in, in the past. And that ended up happening in what right. year? Well, the, the fare finally had to go up in 1948, but the issue of deferred maintenance has been a perennial one in, in every... In all facets of mass transit in New York, even up to this very day, uh, you have to invest adequate amounts of money in renewing and repairing the system, and that's not always been done. But it really reached a low point right after uh, World War II. The system was just so run down that uh, just keeping it operating on a day-to-day basis was, was a challenge. So eventually they en- ended up raising the, the fare right. hike to $0.10. Cent. Was some of that for the maintenance? Right. Oh, so, Well, the, the fare is strictly to pay what are called the operating costs, which means r- routine maintenance, absolutely. It was not just labor. So let's jump up to um, 1953, 64 in that time frame. What were some of the major improvements to the subway system in those time, in, in okay. between that time? Well, the first major change was in 1953 when the Board of Transportation was abolished. The Board of Transportation reported directly to the mayor. It was a mayoral agency just like the Department of Education is today. The mayor in 1953 was Vincent Terry. He had succeeded William O'Dwyer, who mm-hmm. resigned in 1950. And that meant any time there was a problem with the subways or if the fare went up as it did in 1953 to 15 cents, the mayor got the blame. So the Transit Authority was established in 1953 by state law to operate the subway and the city-owned bus system and take control directly away from the mayor's direct control in a five-member board was created to manage the transit authority. In 1955, this became a three-member board, but the idea was take direct control away from the mayor and give this body the power to operate the system, including making decisions on the fare. Was that something the mayor agreed with? Yes, because it took uh, the onus away from the mayor. Absolutely. Uh, so the Transit Authority takes control in July of 1953. The fare is now 15 cents. Under the law that created the Transit Authority, the city was still responsible for funding major capital improvements, such as major rehabs on the stations and tracks and buying new cars and buses. So during the period beginning in 1953 through the mid-60s, many thousands of new subway cars were built to replace the cars that were old and worn out, some of which dated from the turn of the 20th century. So that was one major improvement that was done in the 50s. Another major improvement that was done in the 50s was the rebuilding of two of the major north-south trunk lines uh, in Manhattan. The first one was the IRT Westside Line, today's number 123, which is covered in a chapter in my book. That received a major rebuild in the late 50s that allowed the operation of 10-car local trains on what's now the number one line. Uh, A lot of the stations were all completely rebuilt. 
Beginning later in the 50s, the Lexington Avenue line also underwent a major rebuilding as well. Uh, many new cars, thousands of new cars came into service at this time. Uh, and while almost all those are out of service today, they incorporated features that are still used on some of the cars today. Like what? Uh, they had much better uh, heating and ventilating than the older cars. They didn't have air conditioning yet, but they set the stage for air conditioning. The seats were replaced with fiberglass as opposed to uh, upholstery because of uh, vandalism issues. Fluorescent lighting was introduced, made the interiors of the cars a lot brighter. And the, along with the improved signal systems, the cars could operate a little more quickly than the older ones. So these were all beneficial yes, moving forward. these were all beneficial. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Andrew Sparber, the author of From a Nickel to a Token, The Journey from Board of Transportation to MTA. Talking about the Fifth Avenue coach line now, how did this coach line begin and then end up going out of business in, in, okay. in 1962? Okay, well, to go back when it began, it actually began in the 1880s as a horse-drawn bus system on its namesake avenue only. In the early 1900s, it decided to experiment with the brand-new internal combustion technology and beginning in 1907 began operating motorized buses on Fifth Avenue. So it was the first major urban bus company in the United States. And it pioneered not only that, but the use of double-deck buses on Fifth Avenue, which became a bit of a sightseeing attraction as well. Its fare was 10 cents all the time, double the regular fare, but the idea was you were guaranteed a seat, and if you went to the upper deck, you had a cheap sightseeing tour. Now, Fifth Avenue Coach eventually expanded and took over all of the old, the majority of the trolley lines in Manhattan in the 1920s and then converted all those to bus in the 1930s with the blessings of Mayor LaGuardia. And then in 1956, it took over Third Avenue Transit, which was the primary bus operator in the Bronx, as well as having a few lines in Manhattan as well. So by 1956, Fifth Avenue coach controlled virtually everything in Manhattan and the Bronx, with the exception of five routes that were operated directly by the Transit Authority. And Two routes are operated by a small private company on the Lower East Side. So it was the, by far the biggest operator in Manhattan and the Bronx. So then how did it end up, you know, going the way of the dinosaur? Okay. <laughs> That's an interesting story. It was it was operating profitably, but then a new management took over in February 1962. It was sort of a hostile takeover. A man named Harry Weinberg, who had controlled uh, transit systems in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Dallas, and Honolulu, was able to get enough votes on the board of directors that he and his cronies took control. And one of the men behind this scheme was a man named Roy Cohn, the infamous lawyer who worked for Senator McCarthy. So they were in control of the system, and they immediately said, we're going to have to cut costs, we're going to have to lay off thousands of employees, even though they had a union contract with the Transport Workers Union. We want to raise the fare to 20 cents. So immediately they made enemies of both the union and Mayor Wagner at the same time. So, so we're going from 10 cents, we're doubling No, it. the fare was 15 cents oh, by it was this 15. time. Okay. So uh, they wanted to raise it to 20 cents, so they wanted to ensure themselves a profit. That was anyway. That's what they said publicly. Not very so, diplomatic. No, no, they were very <laughs> undiplomatic. So they they went ahead with their plan for layoffs. They laid they initially laid off twenty nine men who were light duty employees. Most of them were watchmen or men who collected fares on the street and busy at busy stops in Midtown because they had been injured on the job and could no longer drive buses. So this was doubly cruel. So they laid these twenty nine guys off. Then the union immediately went out on strike because 
that, that layoff was illegal. And for three weeks, there was virtually no bus service in Manhattan or the Bronx. So the city stepped in, Mayor Wagner stepped in and conferred with Governor Rockefeller to get state law passed that would allow the city to seize these buses and garages by condemnation and create a new operating subsidiary for the Transit Authority called MAPSTOA. That's a bit of a mouthful. Manhattan and Bronx Surface Transit Operating Authority was created March 1962 to operate these lines that the city had seized. So uh, the strike started March 1st. By March 24th, the private company was, was, was out and the new TA subsidiary in MAPSTOA began operating the buses in the two boroughs. Now, you said there was no service for three weeks. Right. What did that look like for the average rider? Now they don't have, they can't get around. For the average rider, you had you did have the subways. You had a few bus routes in Manhattan that were not affected by this because they weren't part of Fifth Avenue Coach, or you walked or took a taxi. You improvised, but of course it was not a pretty picture. It was very convenient, but there were still yes, ways that they there could were get ways around. to get around. Uh, but it was but it was bad, and it was an essential service. That's why the city stepped in and got the state to pass a law that allowed the condemnation of the properties and then the creation of this new subsidiary. So there was a big strike in 1966, Andrew. Tell me about what happened. Okay. Well, the Transit Authority's contract with the TWU expired December 31st, 1965. It always expired on New Year's Eve of an odd year. So every when Wagner was mayor, typically the negotiations would go down to the wire, and then suddenly there would be a, a settlement uh, in the 11th hour, and then you'd wake up New Year's morning and hear there's no strike. But December 1965, Wagner was a lame duck. He His term expired the same day, the same night that the contract expired. A new mayor was going to be sworn in on New Year's Day, John Lindsay. Mike Quill, who was head of the Transport Workers Union, did not like John Lindsay, and that's why Quill decided, this is going to be my last hurrah, I'm going to pull a strike. He didn't say this publicly, but you could see the vibes. He and Lindsay just didn't get along. That's the direction it was going. Right. And Quill also was in poor health. In fact, he would be dead within a month, and he knew he was on his last day, so he wanted to literally make this his last hurrah. So the workers went out January 1st, 1966, and stayed out for 12 days. What were they striking over? Wages, benefits, everything. They, Lindsay and Quill were at loggerheads. Uh, Lindsay lectured Quill about his civic responsibility. This is the last thing Quill had to hear because he was a labor leader. He was not a civics teacher. And uh, as I said, because he wanted to make this his his final hurrah, the men went on strike and remained out for 12 days. And men what and finally, women, I should say. And so, what finally brought them back? Well, once the strike occurred, there was mediation. There were third parties that got the groups, got the parties together. Eventually... They hammered out a settlement, which was pretty much what Quill wanted in the first place. But he just wanted right. to have this strike right. so that there was some kind of conflict. But exactly. But initially, the city did not want, or the transit authority did not want to grant him everything he wanted. But eventually, as negotiations go, they finally got together and agreed on a settlement. Andrew, what was the significance of the Christie Street connection when it opened in 1967? Okay. The Christie Street connection united the IND and BMT systems into one subway operating division, which since then has been known as the B division. When the IND was originally built in the 1920s, a decision was made to make it physically compatible with the BMT's trains. In other words, bigger than the IRT's. If you ever notice, the numbered lines today have cars that are smaller than the lettered lines. 
And that's because the BMT, when it built its subways under the dual contracts, opted to go with a slightly larger car than the IRT used. Why? Because a little more room for a little more a little more comfort, you know, a little more standing room. The IRT cars are a little more cramped. They're a foot and a half narrower, and they're shorter. BMT trains are bigger. So when the IND was built, it mimicked the BMT's dimensions. So you could build track connections between the two and run the same trains on the two. So with the Christie Street connection, this allowed the operation of many services that would use both the IND and BMT and allow for a more efficient service. A good example is you start out here in the Bronx on the D train and ride to Coney Island, you'll go through the Christie Street, you'll use the Christie Street connection. Once you get to Broadway, Lafayette Street, Manhattan, you'll go through the Christie Street connection, make a stop at Grand Street, go over the Manhattan Bridge, then you're on the BMT and go out to Coney Island on the BMT. So it allowed for this type of through operation. Very so significant. Go, to go straight through right. as opposed to stop, transfer, right. stop, transfer. Andrew, I want to talk about uh, Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, who had one of the few letdowns of his life in, uh, what was it, 1938. Mm -hmm. Okay. Moses, by this time, was not only the city's Parks Commissioner, but he was in charge of all major road and bridge projects. He had been the driving force behind the Triborough Bridge that opened in 1936. In 1938, he proposed to build a truck highway between the Bronx and Westchester using the right-of-way of a railroad that had been abandoned the previous year in 1937, the New York, Westchester, and Boston. But uh, the this plan never became reality. What happened was to that right-of-way in 1941, the city bought it, and it became part of the subway system. It's the number five subway line today in the Northeast Bronx. So the right-of-way was preserved, but for transit use, not for highway use. Moses, of course, was very much anti-rail and very much pro-highway, which, but as you mentioned, that was one of the few times one of his ideas was thwarted. So tell me about his personality a little bit, if he was, if he always got his way, so to speak. Well, he had a monumental ego. Uh, He believed it was literally my way or the highway, and that's a pun intended. And he, most mayors and governors allowed him to get what he wanted because they they swallowed the argument that he created jobs and allowed for increased mobility. Yes, if you had a car, he was great, and there's nothing wrong with having a car and driving, but uh, transit got neglected because of Moses' views. But that finally ended 1968. When the MTA was created under state law, one of the provisos that was pushed through by Governor Rockefeller was that the toll bridge and tunnel surpluses of Moses' agency the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority would be allowed to be used to subsidize the subway and bus system now under the control of the MTA. So this is one time when in 1968, now 30 years later, Moses' power finally was really throttled. And he was almost kind of put out to pasture after that because of Governor Rockefeller and the creation of the MTA. How did he take it? He didn't take it well, but he also, I think he probably realized by then he was 80 years old and it was maybe time to slow down a little bit. Right. Coming up in the 1960s, um, we have the Vietnam War. We have Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination as well as the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Uh, These are very watershed years in history. What did New York's bus and subway system look like at this point? What would it look like now? Okay. In 1968, when the uh, 
MTA was created, the subway and bus system in many ways, at least in terms of its roots, resembled uh, the system that we have today. There haven't been huge numbers of changes. The big changes have been more in creature comforts, such as air conditioning is, is, is universal on the system now. It was just being introduced in 1968 with the uh, order of the uh, part of the R40 car order and, more importantly, the R42 car order, which were the first ones equipped with air conditioning. Uh, the system was in reasonably good shape in the late 60s, but it began to go downhill afterwards, and that's not part of my book. My book ends in 1968, but uh, in the 70s and into the early 80s, it really was on a downward, downward spiral, graffiti, Deferred maintenance, safety issues, all were paramount. Uh, and it didn't begin to reverse till the mid-1980s. So looking forward, um, where do you see our transportation system here in New York going in the next, let's say, 50 years? Well, I see it continuing on an upward spiral because I think it's been proved that when you a lot of money is put into improving the system, which has occurred in the last 30 years, the ridership comes back. There have been days uh, this year and last year when the daily ridership of the subways has topped 6 million people. Those numbers have not been seen since the World War II period. Do you see bigger cars, faster cars, uh, you know, train cars, well, rail cars? I, I see faster cars because of improved signal systems. I don't see bigger cars because you can't make the cars any bigger because of the constraints of the size of the tracks and the curves. But you can certainly have faster service because there are the, because of new, newer signal technology. So we now have the Second Avenue subway that they're building. Um, a lot of work going on in there. Mm. How do you see that benefiting New York? Well, that will take a lot of pressure off the four, five, six subways on Lexington Avenue, which are parallel, which for the last 50 years have been the by far the most heavily used subway trunk line in New York City. So some of the passengers who are using that will now have an alternative using the new 2nd Avenue subway. And the part of the 2nd Avenue subway that is going to open first is, is only the beginning. It's only going to be up to 96th Street. But eventually when the second phase is built, it will go all the way, all the way to 125th and Park Avenue. So it will connect with the 456 at Lexington and with the Metro North Stop at Park Avenue. So it'll, it will interconnect with two other major trunk lines. So, Andrew, you not only worked in transportation, you teach transportation studies. Is this what you thought you'd be doing when you were a little kid? Yes, I always had a lifelong interest in mass transit, so it was really not really a surprise that I ended up working in the field. I worked 25 years for the Long Island Railroad as a manager in a number of capacities, and since I retired from there about eight years ago, I've been on the academic side, and now I teach a course at City University of New York about the history of the system, and my students are all New York City transit workers. Did you have trains, little trains, toy yes, trains I did. when you were younger? I will admit that. <laughs> yes, I did. With the crash of the Metro North Harlem Line, do you think there are preventable measures the MTA and LIRR should be taking, uh, or do you think these incidents are just freak ac accidents? Well, there probably is some technology that might alert a train operator a little better that there's an obstruction on the tracks, but I don't know how well developed it is to allow implementation right now on an existing railroad line. I Unfortunately, it looks like that the 
driver of the vehicle was at fault and, you know, whether she wasn't paying attention or not, it's sad, you know, because she's not around to tell us exactly what happened. But I think the lesson to be learned here is that whenever you're driving a vehicle and you see a railroad grade crossing, you almost have to slow down even if the gates and lights aren't on just to make sure everything is okay. That's probably the, the, the most preventive the most preventative measure a person can take. And having worked for the Long Island and also living in an area where I have to encounter these grade crossings every day, I, I understand the potential danger. But uh, it's not a perfect world, unfortunately. The MTA is constructing a Long Island Railroad concourse at Grand Central Terminal as part of its East Side Access Project. Correct. So what do you think this says for the future of transportation in New York City? Well, I think that is a hugely positive uh, change. I know it's taking a long time to build, but it will happen. We'll finally give Long Island Railroad access directly to the east side of Midtown, which it's never had, and increase its track capacity in and out of Manhattan, which is extremely important. Having worked at the operating end of the Long Island, I know how important this is. This will be a major breakthrough and, and couldn't come any sooner than it, any sooner than it's happening. Important? How important? Because it will allow operation of more trains in and out of Manhattan on the Long Island, give an additional route in and out of Manhattan. So if there's a problem in and out of Penn Station, you now have a second way to get uh, to and from Manhattan and just in general provide a, a much better system. Do you think, Andrew, there's any other city in the world that you can think of that has a better public transportation system than New York City and why? Well, I'm not a big world traveler. I have been to many cities in North America and have been to a few in Europe. Uh, I don't think there's any system that's better than New York's. I think there are some that are comparable. London's and Paris's, when I was just in those two cities this past summer, certainly have systems that are comparable, but both of them lacked something that we take for granted today, air conditioning. Very few of the trains in London and Paris were air conditioned. And I was there in July, and it was during a warm spell, even for Europe, and uh, it was quite uncomfortable. Wasn't pleasant. No. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming in. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, author Andrew Sparberg. His book, From a Nickel to a Token, The Journey from Board of Transportation to MTA, is out now from Fordham Press. I'd also like to thank my producer, Blake Christie. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.